If you got your Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and we will be in verses 1 through 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and 1 through uh, 12. Um, the title of our lesson this morning is Prophecy and Tongues. Prophecy and Tongues. So as most of you know by now, we're just going through the book of, of 1 Corinthians, um, uh, we, we, we cover every verse, every passage, every chapter. We don't try to skip anything, even though it might sometimes it'd be easier on me if we did. Um, but, but we don't do that. And today we come to chapter uh, 14, which is all about prophecy and, and tongues. Now let's first give a little context where we are. So, and everybody should know this by now, uh, the spiritual gifts are causing a lot of problems in the church at Corinth. Everybody remembers Paul goes into Corinth, he establishes the church there, he stays there about a year and a half, and he has to leave. And remember Corinth at that time, what, what town in the United States did, or what city in the United States did we equate that with? Anybody? Vegas, Vegas that's exactly right. It was the Vegas of the, of the, of the Greek world. Um, it was... Uh, very cosmopolitan, anything went. Um, you remember at the time there was a saying in the ancient world to play the Corinthian meant to be sexually promiscuous. It was kind of one of those cities where anything, anything goes. Paul goes in there, establishes a church, stays there about a year and a half, and he leaves. And, and then, but one of the things that, that had happened there is, is the, the spiritual gifts were being used in the church but they were causing a, a whole lot of problems. And so in his letter, Paul is addressing spiritual gifts in chapter 12. And he has to, it, the problems are so bad that he just stops right in the middle of addressing spiritual gifts and he refocuses their attention on love. And we, and we saw that the last two weeks we covered this in, in verse 13. Now, here's the thing. You got these things and they're causing all these kind of problems. So you can understand... If somebody would say, look, if you got something in the church and it's causing all kind of problems, it's causing divisiveness instead of unity, it's causing division instead of unity, then why don't we just forget about it? Why don't we just set that thing aside, whatever that thing may be, in this case the spiritual gifts, why don't we just set that aside and let's just ignore them and let's just move on and focus on things that won't cause so much trouble, that doesn't make people uncomfortable. Uh, why don't we just do that? Now, you can understand that, right? Okay. And in fact, that is an excellent question. And in fact, down through the ages, a lot of people have asked that question. Is it worth it? Why, why should we focus on spiritual gifts? Why should we deal with things like tongues and prophecy that cause all kind of division and all kind of problems? Why don't we just ignore it? And in fact, a lot of denominations and a lot of churches have made that choice and said, we're not going to go there. It's too much trouble. There, there's too many worries, too much anxiety, too much... There's, we're not going to do it. We're just going to stay away from it. Now, Paul knew. He knew it then and he knew it now that people would think that, that, that spiritual gifts are too much trouble. So to, his, to that question, why don't we just ignore them, here's his answer. 1 Corinthians 14.1, he says this, Pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Now, 
there's a lot going to go on in this, this chapter over the next two or three weeks. Before we wade further into this, I want to point out two words that Paul uses in that verse. The first word is pursue, and the second word is desire. He says to pursue love, but earnestly desire spiritual gifts. Now that word pursue is an action verb, right? Uh, the definition means to follow something in order to overtake it or to employ means and measures to obtain or to, to get something. Here's what I was... Last week we, we, talked, we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and, and everybody pretty much knows that's all about love. And somebody, when I walked out of here, they said, well, you know, you talked a lot about love, but you never told us how to get love. Okay? Well, well Paul says, pursue it. Go after it. Try to obtain it. Try to grab it, okay? So here's what he wants us to see about it. You have to do something to obtain it. If you're just sitting there, on your, if you just sit there and say, man, I'm just waiting when love just overwhelms me for people, you're going to be sitting there a long time. Paul says, get up and go after it. Pursue it. Follow it. Try to obtain it. You don't just sit around waiting for love to, to happen. You engage in measures to get it. Everybody see that? Very important. It's an action verb. If you want love in your life for other people, you have to go get up and go do something to, to, to obtain that love. Now, here's the question. What do you have to do? Now, we all know in Galatians 5.22 that love is a fruit. It's not a gift. Love is never called a gift. It's called a fruit. So here's the question. How do I pursue the fruit of love in my life? What actions do I need to do to pursue it? And this is what somebody asked me last Sunday. How do, I, how do I get it? Well, the answer is found in John chapter 15. And if, and if, you, if you're a student of the Bible, you know John 15 is, is all about the fruit and the vine and, and all of this. Jesus said this in John 15, chapter, uh, John 15, verses 5 through 7. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears what? much fruit. And love is a what? It's a fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and he withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Then he gives us three things that you need to do. If, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you will and it'll be done for you. Now let's look at those three things. Number one, Jesus said if you want to produce fruit, and love is one of those fruits, the first thing you have to do is you have to abide in me. So that is the first act of pursuing is to remain in Jesus Christ. We have to first and foremost realize that apart from him, we can do nothing. Okay, that's the first thing. If I, if I move away from him, I'm not going to produce fruit. If I move toward him... I will produce fruit. So I have to stay in Jesus. I have to stay in the vine. Now, how do we do that? Well, even when Jesus himself walked on this earth, he himself said of this of his miraculous acts. John 5, 19, the Son can do nothing of himself. John 14, 10, the Father who dwells in me does the works. You see, we're the same way. Acting on our own, we cannot produce love. We just cannot do it. Okay, we, we can love our family, we can love our, our, our spouse, our children, our relatives, that, that kind of that natural thing that we have. But to love our enemy, 
to love people that we hardly even know, to love people who maybe don't believe like we do or look like we do, that agape love, that, that does not come naturally to a human being. That has to be produced in us. And it's done uh, through the gift of God's Holy Spirit dwelling in us. You see, when, when we are saved, the Bible tells us very clearly in Corinthians that if you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to Him. Which means if you belong to Jesus, you have the Spirit. And one of the things the Spirit does in us is He, for example, He writes the Word on our heart, does He not? The Bible tells us that. He imparts spiritual understanding. He gives us not only the ability to obey, He gives us the want to. He gives us the will to, to obey. And without those things, we can do absolutely nothing. So it's imperative, first of all, that we're Christians, that we're really saved, and the Holy Spirit dwells within us, and then we abide in Jesus Christ. Jeremiah 17, uh, 7, through, uh, 7 through 8, not 87, says this, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the waters which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaf will be green and it will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. What do you have to do? It says it right there. You have to trust in him and put your hope in him. Everything is about him. You stay abiding in him and you do that through the Holy Spirit. Now, number two, Jesus said this, and my words abide in you. We have to pursue the Word. We have to study the Word. We have to meditate on the Word. We have to consume the Word. Listen, if you, if you think you're going to produce love in your life and you just leave this thing sitting on your bedside table and you don't ever read it, you don't ever study it, you're fooling yourself. There's something about eating this Word. There's something about consuming this Word that does something to a, to a Christian. So, and he says it very clearly, I, you have to remain in me and my words have to abide in you. 1 Timothy 2.15 says this, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handing the word of truth. So number one, you have to abide in him. Number one, number two, his words have to abide in you. And number three, he says, ask whatever you will. Now, it's almost comical to me that we'll take that out of context. We'll pull that out of that, that passage and say, oh, you mean I can ask for a new car? I can ask for a new house, a new, a new husband? I can ask for all these things and it'll be done for me? Listen, folks, in context, that entire passage is about what? It's about fruit. It's about fruit. Abide in me and you'll produce fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. He says, abide in me, let my words abide in you, and ask whatever you will. Doesn't it make more sense that what he's talking about asking is fruit? Shouldn't we first and foremost be asking him to produce fruit in my life? Doesn't that make more sense in context of the passage? I mean, it does for me. So that's one of the things we do. We stay in him. We read this Bible, we consume this Bible, and we pray. And we say, Lord, produce love in me, produce peace in me, produce joy in me. And then he goes and does it. Okay? Now, Paul himself modeled this when he prayed for the Philippian church, Philippians 1.9. Watch what he prays for. He said, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. He's praying that God would give them love. We should do the same thing. Okay, 
So, so those are the things that Jesus tells us to do. So how do we pursue the fruit of love? We abide in Him. We make sure that His Word abides in us. And then we ask Him through our prayer life to produce love in our life. Now, that's how you pursue love. Now, contrast that with spiritual gifts. He says, pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts. Listen, you cannot pursue gifts. You can do nothing to get them. Okay? It, it is a, it is, it's a charisma. That's what the Greek word means. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. He just gives it to you. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. It's not because you're more mature. It's not because you know more of the word. It's none of those things. If, if, if it was because of something, then he would tell you to pursue it. But he doesn't. He just says, want it. Does everybody see the difference there? Pursue love, but all you can do for spiritual gifts is desire them. That's all you can do. Now, he does use the word earnestly. And the word earnestly means be serious about it. This is not something you just do on a whim. It's not something you do, you walk out of here on a Sunday morning and say, man, I'm going to really earnestly desire a spiritual gift, and by Monday you've already forgotten about it. That's not what Paul is talking about. He says seriously desire. Be serious in your intent. Be serious in your, in your purpose. We're not, not just to want them in passing. So Paul says when it comes to spiritual gifts, we are to earnestly desire. And he says desire the spiritual gifts. Now, as we said a few weeks ago, there's about 20 of them. 20 spiritual gifts, and we won't go back through the whole list. We've got them all up there on the, on the PowerPoint. But we are to desire all of the gifts, okay? Now, Paul adds this. Pursue love, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially. He elevates one of those to the top. He says, especially that you may prophesy. Now, more than any other gift, we are to desire prophecy. All right. Now, the point of today's passage, and in fact, the point of chapter 14 is really easy. It's pretty clear, pretty straightforward. Prophecy is greater than any other gift. And we're, we're going to be here for two or three weeks, so we won't get into all of this today. But he's saying you should desire that gift above, above any other. All right. Now, Paul is going to use this entire chapter to, to hammer home that point. He's, this whole chapter, he's going to say prophecy is better than any other gift. But he's going to spend the whole chapter comparing it to only one other gift. He's not going to compare it to encouragement. He's not going to compare it to exhortation or giving or any of those. He's going to compare it to one other gift, and that is the gift of tongues. And he's going to say prophecy is greater than that. Now, here's my question. Why? Why would he do that? Well, evidently, as we'll see as we go through this chapter... The gift of tongues was causing the majority of problems in the church. By the way, that was 2,000 years ago, and I dare say that gift still causes the majority of problems today. The Bible is always up to date. Anybody that thinks this is some ancient document that doesn't have any effect on your lives has no idea what they're talking about. You see, what had happened is the people in Corinth had elevated that gift to the top. They thought, boy, this is the gift that we all need to have. Now, here's my question. Why do you think that is? What do you think is it about tongues? And this is a question I'm looking for an answer to. What do you think it is it about tongues that makes it so desirable that people would think, man, that's the top gift? Anybody? 
Some people need it for validation. They think, boy, if you get this, then I'm really saved. Or if I get this, I'm really spiritual. Anybody else? It's recognizable, right? Anybody here, you know, you can be a giver and, and nobody knows it, right? You can be an encourager. Nobody knows it, right? But, buddy, when you speak in tongues, everybody knows it, right? It is a recognizable. And some people want to be recognized. So I think those are, those are, are, are clear. I think there's three for me. Number one, it's, it's mysterious, is it not? It's this kind of this boy, it's this mysterious gift, and if you get that, but I think those other two, it really seems more spiritual than the other ones. And, and people go after it because, boy, if I get that one, then I must be more spiritual. And, and, and we said it, it's recognizable. So for those reasons, I really do think tongues is, is elevated. It was elevated then, and it's elevated now higher than it should be. But those same reasons that make it more desirable also make it more, it, it tends more to be misused. Okay, and we're going to talk a lot over the next week or so about how tongues are supposed to be used properly instead of improperly. So Paul says to them, no, look guys, you got it all wrong. Tongues, yes, they may be mysterious, and, and they may seem more spiritual, but they're not. That's what he's saying. Prophecy is to be desired over tongues, and here's why. Now listen to what Paul says. Let's, I'm going to read through the verse here. This is his reasoning why prophecy is greater than tongues. Verses 1 through 12, he says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, because nobody understands him, and he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and their encouragement and their consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more, he says, I want you to prophesy. Because the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers and sisters, he's going on. It's the same argument. If I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or some knowledge or some prophecy or some teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anybody know what's being played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, how will anybody get ready for battle? So it is with yourselves. If with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anybody know what you're saying? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I don't know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So it is with yourself. Since you are eager for the manifestation of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Okay? Now, here's what Paul... There, here's two different... I'll, I'll give you a few differences, and we'll go into these more uh, next week. Three differences between tongues and prophecy. Number one, Paul says a person that speaks in tongues is speaking to who? He's God. He's speaking to God. But a person that prophesies in, in just a regular language is speaking to men and women. He's speaking to the church. He's speaking to human beings or people. Tongues, when they speak, Paul says nobody understands what they're saying. 
They're speaking mysteries, okay? But when you prophesy, I, you're, you're saying something that's understandable. And then number three, when you, when you speak in tongues, he says you're building up yourself. You're edifying yourself. You're making yourself stronger. But the person that prophesies is building up other people. He's, he's encouraging them. He's consoling them. He's, he's building them up, okay? Now, with that said, why would that make prophecy a greater gift and more to be desired than tongues? I'll go back to those three things. Why would those three things make prophecy a better gift? Why would it make it a, a greater gift? Well, the reason is because prophecy fits in exactly with what the Christian life is supposed to be all about in that service. Okay? Titus 2.14 says this, talking about Jesus. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. What's those last four words? Zealous for good deeds. Zealous for, for servicing others. Zealous for helping others. That, that's what he, one of the reasons that he called us as a people to himself is to turn around and pour that out to other people. But tongues doesn't do that. Tongues builds up yourself. Prophecy is for other people. It helps other people. So it fits right in with the Christian life. 1 Peter 4.10 As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Acts 20.35 In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And of course, Galatians 5, 13 through 14 says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. In other words, don't use your freedom to serve yourself. But through love, do what? Serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what Christianity is all about is about reaching out. It's about loving. It's about serving. It's about helping. It's being zealous for good deeds. It's not about building me up. Now, by the way, here's the great thing about Christianity. As you're doing all those things, guess what you're doing? You're building yourself up. But if, if my focus is me, I've, I've completely missed it. My focus has to be others. That's why prophecy is a greater gift, because it fits right in with, with service and the Christian life. Now, we got a lot to talk about uh, today, and we won't get very far today. we got a lot to talk about next week with regards to tongues and prophecy. Remember a few weeks ago, let me tell you, my first experience with being exposed to tongues and things like that was bad. Anybody, everybody can, anybody say that? It was, not only was it bad because it scared me to death, it was bad because it wasn't biblically sound. A lot of the things I saw just weren't biblical. And I didn't know it because I didn't have a good, I didn't, I'd never read all this. I ne nobody ever taught it to me. So, so I had to do a lot of unlearning and go back to the Bible and, and start putting the pieces, oh, this is the way it's supposed to work. And that's what we're going to do over the, next, over the next week or two. We're going to look at what the Bible says about it, not what culture says, not what, what charismatic churches say or anything like that. We're just going to look at what the Bible says. But before we go there, I want to talk about one other thing. We've been talking about spiritual gifts now for, I don't know, probably six weeks, ever since we started in chapter 12. And I would hope and imagine that at least a few of you may have asked yourself this question. I hope you have, okay? 
Should I make the pursuit of spiritual gifts a priority in my life? I hope some of y'all are, are mulling that in your head. Should I go after spiritual gifts? Should I pray for spiritual gifts? Should I want spiritual gifts? Okay, I, I, And I know one or two of you have come up to me and said that you are doing that, and, I'm, and I think that's great. So we are asking, I hope we're asking that question. Well, I'm here today to tell you that if you believe that Bible is the Word of God, you don't have a choice. This isn't an optional thing. Paul says, earnestly, seriously desire spiritual gifts. That is a command, not a suggestion. He's not saying, look, if it fits your lifestyle, pray for spiritual gifts. He says, you know, if you, if you don't mind, if you got some extra time, go after spiritual gifts. Or pray. He doesn't say any of that. He says, earnestly, seriously desire spiritual gifts. It's a command, not a, not a suggestion for you and for, for me. Now, a few weeks ago, I showed you this little chart. And I said, when it comes to the sign gifts, and by the sign gifts, we mean things like sign, uh, uh, tongues, interpretation of tongues, um, uh, um, prophecy, miracles, healing, things like that, things that are kind of the big ones. There are really three groups. Everybody remember this little thing we did right here? On the left, you have what's, what are called the cessationists. And they believe that, look, sign gifts stopped a long time ago. Okay, they don't, they don't exist anymore. That was just for the time of the apostles and, and, the, and the church and the book of Acts. But they, they stopped. They, they ceased. That's why we call them cessationists. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, on the far other side are what we would call charismatics. Okay? Now, they believe not only are, are they for today, but we need to just go after them pretty much no holds barred. Everybody with me? Just, man, whatever comes, let's just go after it with everything. And then in the middle is people like me. Okay, I would put myself here. I am what's called open but cautious. When I, when I read the Bible and I study the Bible, there is no evidence in here whatsoever that sign gifts have ceased. What, what the Holy Spirit gave to the early church, He gave to the church in the Middle Ages. He gave to the, he gave it, He's given it to the church today. There is no evidence in here that says those gifts have ceased. At the same time, I see a lot of bad stuff out there. Everybody with me? A lot of bad stuff. So I'm like, okay, I'm stuck in the middle because my Bible says you should be practicing spiritual gifts, but then when I see people practicing, I'm like, ugh. I don't really want to go over there. They got a lot of problems over there. They got a lot of issues over there. I don't really want to be like that. Okay? So the question becomes, is I, and I kind of know being in the middle is not a good spot. Right? I mean, you're, you're in the middle because you're, yeah, you're lukewarm. I mean, even the Bible says, I'd rather be hot or cold. You know, go one way or the other, commit to it, and get there. So as I sit in the middle... And I ask myself, all right, which way should I go? Which way should I move? Well, see, Paul says, son, look, I just answered that question for you. Earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. You see, don't, don't, Paul's not dumb. He knows there's problems in the church. He knows those gifts cause issues. He knows all that. And still, he says, go that way. Now, there's a, when you get over there, there's a right way to do things, and we'll talk about all that, 
That doesn't mean they're right. Everybody with me? I'm not saying go over there and just jump in, but I'm saying Paul says move that way. Earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. I was laying in bed the other night, and I was just thinking this through. And, and I was thinking about, boy, you know, you know yeah, I, you know, I, I see what you're saying, Paul, but man, there's just some, man, if we go that way, there's just going to be problems, and there's going to be issues, and there's going to be anxieties, and there's going to be worries. And this analogy come to my mind, and the analogy is children. You know, I, was, I read an article the other day that more and more young couples are deciding not to have children. And when they ask them why, they say, well, man, I look at my friends, and, and they got kids, and, and they can't do anything they want to do. <laughs> They're spending all their money. And beyond that, there's all these, if I don't have kids, you'll avoid problems. You'll avoid worries. You'll avoid, avoid sorrow. Let me tell you, if you have children, you're going to have all those things. You're going to have worries. My, my boys are 20 and 28. I still worry about them. You're going to have, they're going to break your heart. Children will, will absolutely break your heart at some point. You're going to have heartaches. You're going to have sorrow. And so you, you sit there, okay, look, I could not have kids and avoid all that. Right? Or I can choose to have kids and I'm going to, all that's going to come with it. So which one do I do? You see, we ask ourselves that question, yet people choose all the time to have children. Why? Because it's worth it. Because the rewards so far outweigh the, the problems. The positives so far outweigh the negatives. And, and beyond that, here's the thing. Because adding children to your life makes your life more like life. Adding children to your life makes your life more abundant. It makes it more fulfilling. It makes it more... Everything. I mean, I can't imagine. If, if I didn't have my children, would I be richer? Yeah. Would I have less worries? Yeah. Would I, would I, all of those things would go away, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. And you see, that's exactly, listen to me, that's exactly what Paul is thinking with spiritual gifts. You see, on one side, you can be a cessationist, and you can avoid the problems. You can avoid the worries. You can avoid the heartbreak, and the sorrow. Or you can go the other way and you're going to have problems. You're going to have some, 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 some headaches. But you see, Paul says, folks, it's worth it. Go that way. It's worth it. Now, why? Because it's the same reason. Because when you, listen to me, the same way that adding children to your life makes it more fulfilling, more abundant, more, it makes it more everything, when you add the Holy Spirit, the manifestation of the Holy Spirit to the church through the spiritual gifts, it makes everything more abundant, more fulfilling, more powerful, more everything. You see, when we leave Him out, when we leave Him out of the spiritual gifts, yes, man, we don't have as many headaches. We don't have as many worries. don't have as many crazy people coming out of the woodwork. But Paul says... It's worth it. It's worth it. Yeah, you're going to have some of those issues, but when the Holy Spirit is moving the way He's supposed to move and He's manifesting Himself the way He's supposed to, boy, church is... You know, I wonder sometimes, we walk around and say, you know, I just don't really have the joy that I should have. Could it be because we're leaving the Holy Spirit out? I, I think church could be more than it is. Could it be because we're leaving the Holy Spirit and His manifestations out? 
I just think we could be more, there's more, we could be more powerful, more impactful. Could it be? Because we're leaving him out? You see, I think that's Paul's reasons. Yes, you're going to have worries. Yes, you're going to have problems. But he says, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts anyway. Do it anyway. Okay? So yes, folks, you are to desire the spiritual gifts. And like it or not, one of those gifts is tongues. Like it or not, one of those gifts is tongues. And so what we want to talk about starting today, and again, we won't get through it today, we'll carry it into next week, is what is the gift of tongues? Got a lot to talk about. What we'll answer today is what is the gift. Uh, next week we need to talk about how is it supposed to be used. It is, I'll tell you this, it is completely misused in a lot of churches, in an awful lot of churches. And, 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 and we'll get into that. It needs accountability. It needs a lot of things, uh, just like every other gift does. But we will get into that next week. So number one, what is the question that we want to answer today before we close? What is the gift of tongues? Now, there's not a simple answer to that question. And, and like I said, we cannot cover it in one lesson. So what I want to do is I want to approach it by asking typical questions that people usually ask and then providing what I believe are biblical answers. Okay. So let's, we're going to try to get to a couple of them today. Let's go back before we do that to the very first, where we are first introduced to tongues. The very first scripture where we see anything about tongues in the Bible, and that is Acts chapter 2, verses 4 through 11. So we all know the story. On the day, on the, of, the day of Pentecost, there's 120 people in the upper room. The disciples are there. Uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is in that room. A lot of people forget about that. She's there with them. His brothers are there. 120 people are in that open upper room. And the Bible says the Holy Spirit falls. Okay? And, it's, and then it says this, starting in verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, the word tongues, by the way, in Greek just means what? Anybody? Language. They began to speak in other tongues languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the multitude came together. So there in this upper room, it says the Holy Spirit came with this sound of a mighty rushing wind. It must have been so loud that people around the city could hear it. And they got up from what they were doing and they went to that sound. And so they all come to this, to this place. And it says that this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these people that are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia... Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Everybody see what happened on that day? Some, a guy comes out of the upper room, he's speaking, in, he's a Galilean, he, he just speaks, he, he don't have no education, that's what they mean by that. They're just a bunch of dumb fishermen. How, what's going on here? So they're talking, and people hear them in their own languages. Okay? Now, here's the question. Is the gift of tongues the supernatural ability to utter real human languages 
not previously known or studied by the speaker. In other words, would I, if, I just, if I went to Mexico, let's say, and I went out into a village and I got up to speak and I began to speak in Spanish, and I don't know Spanish, is that the gift of tongues? Is that, because that's, by the way, that's what happened on the day of Pentecost. Well, in my opinion, the answer to this question is yes. Okay? They were speaking actual languages. They weren't speaking in a heavenly language. They weren't speaking in a divine language. They were speaking Persian. They were speaking Libyan. They were speaking Arabian. They were speaking Egyptian. They were speaking those languages. Now, by the way, not everybody agrees with that. Okay? Here's a, a guy by the name of J. Rodman Williams who wrote a book called Renewal Theology. He says this. Now, listen very closely to what he says. He says, this was not the hearing of one's own language, but the hearing, let me say that again, this was not the hearing of one's own language, but the hearing in one's own language. He says, at the same moment that other tongues were spoken through the Holy Spirit, they were immediately translated by the same Holy Spirit into the many languages of the multitude. Let me explain what he says, okay? One of two things happened that day. They came out and they were actually speaking, let's say, Arabian. Everybody with me? Or they were speaking in some divine language and the Holy Spirit, when that guy out there from Arabia, the Holy Spirit would translate it in his mind so that he heard it in Arabian. Does everybody see the difference? Okay? Everybody see that? Now, I believe they were speaking real languages, that they were speaking Arabian, they were speaking Egyptian. Now, here's why I believe that. Because the other view, there's a real problem with that. Because if the view is correct that, that they were speaking these heavenly languages and the Holy Spirit was interpreting it for that hearer, then what that means is the Holy Spirit gave the gift of interpretation to unbelievers. Everybody see that? I mean, if I'm sitting there and I'm an unbeliever and, I'm, and, I, and somebody's uh, uh, saying something in an unknown tongue and I'm hearing it, the Holy Spirit's giving me the gift to interpret it, that means the Holy Spirit just gave a charisma, a, a Holy Spirit spiritual gift. He just gave it to an unbeliever. Okay, now, here's the problem with that. But that's, that's nowhere in the Bible. You find nowhere in the Bible where the Holy We have no scriptural support for the Holy Spirit ever doing anything like that. He manifests the spiritual gifts in the life of believers, not unbelievers. So the, the, the simplest and most sensible explanation seems to me, and I think that's supported by the text, is that those, those Galileans, when they came out of that upper room, they were speaking real human languages. They were speaking Egyptian. They were speaking, uh, again, Arabian, or Mesopotamian, or whatever those languages were, they were speaking those. So yes, that is, that is something that happened. Now, here's the second question. We've got about five minutes. Is the gift of tongues always the speaking of human languages? Is that the way it always works? Well, my opinion is no. No, that's not always what it is. And here's why I believe that. First of all, Acts chapter 2 is the only text in the New Testament where the gift of tongues consists of people speaking foreign languages. But there's no reason to think that because it happened that way that time that that's always the way it happens. Okay, I think there, there's other factors suggest that, that people speak in heavenly or angelic speech. For example, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 
He's talking about the spiritual, 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 spiritual gifts. He says he gives to, a, to another working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another what? Various kinds of tongues. In other words, I do believe that there are times that the Holy Spirit will do what he did on the day of Pentecost and he will give somebody a gift to speak in a real human language. Could be Spanish, could be Italian, could be French, could be whatever. But there are other times that he gives the ability to people just to speak in an angelic or heavenly dialect that nobody knows. Okay, And I think that's what Paul means by various kinds of tongues. Now, could Paul mean various kinds of human languages? He could. But he could also mean there are different categories of tongues, human languages versus heavenly languages. In today's passage that we read in verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 2, Paul says, listen to this, those that speak in a tongue speak not to men, but to who? God. But if tongues are always human languages, then speaking to men is exactly what they're doing. Does everybody see that? If, 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 if tongues is always speaking human languages, like French or Italian or Spanish or something like that, then you're always speaking to men. You're not speaking to God. See, I think there's a category of tongues that, that is a heavenly dialect, an angelic dialect, that Paul says you're speaking, to, you're, you're speaking mysteries. Nobody, under, nobody understands what you're saying. Okay? Again, in 14.2, he says that, and there's another one. He says that when one speaks in a tongue, no one understands him. But if tongues is always a human language, there'd be somebody that could understand you, wouldn't there? I mean, pick any language out there. If you spoke that language, somebody will understand you. But Paul says when you speak in tongues, nobody understands you. Okay? Moreover, if tongues is always a human language, then the gift of interpretation would not... You wouldn't need a spiritual gift, would you? I mean, somebody can, can interpret French. There's always, I mean, just ed, all you need is an education. So I think the gift of tr- interpretation is needed when someone speaks in that, in that heavenly uh, language. Furthermore, in 1 Corinthians 13:1, Paul refers, he says this, he talks about the tongues of men and the tongues of what? Angels. There's those two categories uh, again. Here's the reason I, I believe with all my heart that Paul... Yes, by the way, I do think sometimes the gift of tongues is speaking in a real language, but the majority of time it's speaking in, a, in an angelic dialect. And here's why. Look what Paul says. We'll get to this next week. In verses 18 and 19, Paul says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. See, Paul says, I speak in tongues more than all of it. Where is he doing it? In private. Now, let me ask you this. Why in the world would Paul go in private and speak French? Or Spanish? Or why would he do that? That That makes no sense, right? Wayne Gruden says this in Systematic Theology. If they were known foreign languages that foreigners could understand like at Pentecost, why would Paul speak more than all the Corinthians in private where nobody's there, rather than in a church where foreign visitors could understand? See, so I do think there's two categories. And and, and again, I'm hoping this is not confusing anybody, but I want to make sure we understand what the gift of tongues is. Okay, So what is the gift of tongues? Tongues may be human languages, never before learned by the speaker, but they don't have to be. 
They may also be angelic dialects or unique utterances given by the Spirit to believers according to the, the will of God. So again, that's all we're going to get to today. We've got a lot to cover next week, and I'm not sure if we'll get it all next week. We're going to talk about prophecy and tongues, how they're supposed to work, how they're not supposed to work, and uh, I hope you guys will, will join me. Let's pray. Father... We thank you for 1 Corinthians 14, as we always do, we thank you for Scripture. Uh, No matter whether we agree with it, whether we like it, whether we don't like it, whether we wish it wasn't in there, none of that matters. The fact is, I believe it is your word. And since it's your word, I will submit to its authority. And we do that this morning. We don't always know the right thing, Lord, but we ask the Holy Spirit today. I can tell you what we do want. We want you, Lord. We want the Holy Spirit. We want full, abundant Christian life. I don't have, we've wasted too much time. We don't want to play church. We want the real thing. But behind the real thing is you. We don't want to get caught up in anything. We want to focus and abide on you and let you have your way in us. God, God, just turn our hearts. You know, just, just mold our hearts, shape our hearts. To, to people that will be accepting, not embarrassed, not ashamed, but accepting of the Holy Spirit in our life and in this church and in this county. And we'll be proud to say, to stand and say that we serve a risen Savior. We serve a Savior that not only rose 2,000 years ago, but is alive and active through His Spirit in this church today. We ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all.